may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Ridgetop Church. Uh, my name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here, and um, we're really glad you're here. We, we care about the Bible and uh, care a lot about every word of it, and so consequently we preach uh, things that are hard passages, and this is no doubt a hard uh, passage, um, and we, we've been in Genesis for quite some time. Um, we started with Genesis 1 and 2, where we saw God creating everything, this self-existent, all-good, all-powerful God is the genesis of everything. Then we saw in Genesis 3 a, a, a decreation. We saw human beings sin and it set in motion this dismantling of uh, God's good uh, creation. Uh, G- Genesis 4, we get to see a kind of a close-up with uh, Cain and Abel of what that dismantling looks like, especially in terms of the human relationships. And it's a little bit like a journalist telling particular stories that are going on on the ground in a a war-torn area. So we've been watching these in Ukraine, and we've been watching these uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian war, where uh, when you hear the political commentators and the experts talk about it, it sounds, okay, it's bad, but then you get a story of someone who's suffering, and suddenly it brings it home. And so the Cain and Abel story, uh, a little bit like that, where it's kind of bringing it home uh, in regards to how it affects human beings. And then Genesis uh, both 4 and 5, we see that sin proliferates. And we see that in the fact that people are dying. Everyone that's, that's born is then uh, fi- finding their, their, their not-so-grand finale as uh, a death. Uh, but also that they're spiraling down into themselves and away from God. That proliferation that we talked about last week in uh, Genesis 4... Uh, I read this to you, verse 17. It said, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And Enoch, to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And then a few verses later, it describes Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And we saw it, you know, at the end of that chapter, this like escalation, this proliferation of sin and its effects. And so there's this ongoing kind of Lamech-style living that. Uh, dehumanizes, oppresses, even murders people. And so uh, image bearers of God are, are being killed at the hands of image bearers of God. And all of it's being done as a, a mockery to some degree. We hear in Lamech's tone in the words that he sang, a mockery against God. And so what we find in the next, next chapter, which is what we just heard Kat read, it gets even worse. Aren't you glad you came? Yeah. Um, and so what we're going to do is a flyover of uh, Genesis 6, 7, 8, 9. Okay, it's four chapters that are given to Noah in really one year of Noah's life. And so this is a massive slowdown. And you, if you, you know, watch movies or you're a storyteller, you know, you can like do a quick recap of something and then all of a sudden you slow down and you focus in. And this is what we're doing in Genesis here. We're we're focusing in for four whole chapters on Noah and what happens to Noah in one year uh, of his life. And the, the overall plot line here is sin's proliferation, God's plan, and humanity's plummet. I know those are all P's, but maybe that'll help you remember where I'm headed. Sin's proliferation, God's plan, humanity's plummet. I had to work on that plummet one, but I think it does fit what, I'm, what the, uh, that the scriptures is, are saying here. So sin's proliferation, Genesis 6. So again, find this in your Bible there on the, on the chair or on your phone because you, you're going to want to follow along. Genesis 6, verse 1 through 4. Uh, when man began to multiply on the face of the, of the land and daughters were born to them. That sounds good. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. 
And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, this is some weird stuff. This may be the weirdest passage in the Bible, honestly. Uh, Trying to figure out what this stuff is. The sons of God, whoever they are, are marrying the daughters of man. There's this contrast language there. And the result of this union is some kind of Goliath-type superhuman. That's a violent killer. So that's what's being described here. This superhuman eventually, that race kind of eventually gave rise to these Nephilim, which just means son of Nephil. The Nephilim are mentioned one other time in the Bible. And it's part of the reason that the the people of God don't want to go into the promised land is because of the Nephilim. So Numbers 13, 32. And again, this is in the five-volume set that is the the books of Moses. Numbers 13, 32. So they brought to to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. So again, don't know exactly what's going on here, but what they represent is some kind of a threshold. That once it's crossed, God is not happy, and he brings judgment. Uh, we, we see this threshold being described, not just as these Nephilim uh, are being uh, procreated, but Genesis 5, 5 and 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So again, you see this proliferation of sin, not just external behaviors, but an internal condition that human beings are corrupt to their very core. Every intention of the thoughts of the heart were evil. We talked about the dynamics of the fall of human beings last week, and we heard about uh, God telling Cain, sin is crouching at your door. There's this indwelling condition (laughs) that's waiting to strike, to pounce. And here, a different description of this is internal condition of not just sinful behavior, but a, an internal corruption. Jesus taught this, right? That this is part of the dynamics of the fall. Matthew 15, 18 and 19. He's talking to actually a bunch of very nice religious people. And he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. That out of inward corruption is coming this external sinful behavior. This indwelling sin, kind of like a latent virus that is just waiting to create an outbreak. Sometimes I get a cold sore. I hate these things. And it's because there's a virus in my body. And every once in a while, when I get tired or I get stressed, one pops up. And I I try to mitigate it. I try to control it. I even take this little supplement that's like cold sore, no more. I got one two weeks ago. I mean, I take this religiously. It's latent. It's an infection. And it's just waiting to reveal itself. But cold sore is the least of my worries. I have indwelling sin. Listen to the Apostle Paul talk about indwelling sin in the human being. Romans 7, verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. You see him just describing this human predicament that even when we're trying to mitigate and manage sinful behavior, it just rears its head. What's going on? It's because of this internal condition, a corruption 
to the core. And God says he's grieved that he created human beings. Now, that's strange. That is a strange description, right? Isn't God all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, all-wise, self-existent? The Alpha and the Omega? Like, I mean, how can, how can he be grieved that he did something? I mean, we, we literally could just go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and explain why this is a strange description of, of God. How could he take an action and then regret it? And we see God expressing human emotions or human-like emotions throughout the scriptures. Um, and so what he's doing in an anthropopathic way, there's a good seminary word. Anthropomorphic is more like he has a hand or he has an arm, but anthropopathic is that he has emotions. And so he's expressing these emotions. Now, God is never surprised by anything. He knows everything. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is impassable, is the technical term. Nothing can act on him and change him. He is unchangeable. He he is the origination of everything. (laughs) Nothing acts on him and changes him. So when he expresses grief or regret, it's not because something has acted on him and it surprised him and now he's feeling grief. He intended to express those emotions, sometimes it's said, in eternity past. Another way to say it is in the mind of God. And so I know that's a lot to get your mind around, right? It's hard, hard to wrestle with that. I'm not going to go down that hole any further. We can talk about it in Lazarus if you want to after the service. But what we are, what we want to focus on is that God actually cares deeply about what's going on on planet Earth. It's more than some sort of theological treatise. He's not aloof. He's not above the day-to-day things that are going on between human beings. Right? I think sometimes when, when we are like sort of imbibing digital reports about you know, the war in Ukraine or the world war in Israel, and we're like, man, that sounds really, really bad. You know, We're sipping our latte and chatting about world events at the coffee shop. This is not God. God has a gut-level emotion. Regarding what's going on between human beings. He's intimately aware of the situation on the ground. He is grieved by the proliferation of the sin and how it's destroying his creation, including human beings. And what is at the root of the destruction? Wickedness. Wickedness, right? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Now, the Bible uses the word wicked different than we do. We, we, we talk about it as the wicked witch of the West, right? Um, but it really it is a term that just means godless. It means people are living as functional atheists. It, they may even be religious to some degree, give lip service to a belief in God, much like Cain in the offering that he offered up in the passage we looked at last week. But they're not putting their full faith and trust in God. They are wicked. They are God-less. And what the passage is saying is this is what is at the heart of the corruption. This is what is at the heart of the sinful both actions and inward condition. The New Testament would back back that up, right? Hebrews 3.12, the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Sin is not just a rejecting of some rules. It's a rejection of a relationship with God. And it is a deadly separation starting with one's relationship with God and then overflowing into relationship with self and others and the earth. This is the predicament that we see in this chapter. But God has a plan. He has a plan. And he's going to deal with it, right? So Genesis 6, verse 7, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. So there's two parts to the plan. The first part is judgment. God's going to blot out, he says, human beings, which will include animals as well. 
Um, now, as moderns, uh, we recoil at this kind of stuff in the Bible. A God that judges people for their sins. I mean, isn't God a God of love? Doesn't God love all people? How could a God who is a God of love and a God who loves all people pour out wrath and judgment on people? Well, God is a God of love, but he's not only a God of love, right? Like, there's so many different facets to God's character. It doesn't take much of a a Bible search to see this, right? So here's a few examples, like Deuteronomy 4, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Also Deuteronomy, the Lord your God is a merciful God. This is in the very same chapter, right? Deuteronomy 10, for the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. Second Samuel 22, this God is my strong refuge. Second Chronicles 30, God is gracious and merciful. Job 36, God is exalted in his power. Job 36 as well, God is great. Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 68, God is our salvation. Psalm 99, God is holy. Psalm 116, gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Isaiah 12, behold, God is my salvation. And you could go to the New Testament. All right, Hebrews 12, 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Sound familiar? He's kind of republishing that characteristic of God's character. John 4, God is spirit. 1 John 1, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. 1 Timothy 4, the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And then, of course, 1 John 4, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is is love. Now, I know we like to stitch that on the pillow, right? God is love, but there's a whole lot more to God's character than God is love. He's all these things and more, and part of his character is righteousness and justice, and he expresses that with judgment. This is only part of the plan. The other part is salvation. God is a God of mercy who saves. We even saw it in some of those descriptors there in the Old and New Testament. And so an unlikely Savior emerges from an unlikely family. Right? Genesis 5, we go back from last week, verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah comes from the line of Lamech. And Lamech seems to think that this this kid is going to bring some kind of salvation, right? That perhaps he's the offspring that was promised to Adam and Eve that would come and crush the serpent and crush sin. That Noah was going to bring some kind of reprieve from the suffering and the toil And they even names him rest, basically is what his name means, uh, in order to indicate that Noah was going to bring about this reprieve. So in Genesis 6, verse 7, we see the second part of the plan. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But, second part of the plan, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. And Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah found, finds favor with God. God is not only going to save Noah, but by his extension from Noah, he's going to save Noah's family. Noah's three sons, Noah's wife, and the wives of Noah's three sons. And the way it's described here again is that Noah is the one who has found favor in God's eyes. And it says he was righteous, he was was blameless in his generation. doesn't mean he's perfect. It just means he's above reproach. There's no credible accusations that can be weighed against him. And why is he like this? Is Noah just a good guy? 
right? Does he just come from a good family? No, it's definitely not that. Received some good training? I doubt it. Uh, I don't think Lamech was a great father. Um, Maybe, you know, he just worked really hard, and he was a self-made man, this, this Noah. No, he walked with God. He walked with God. This is the opposite of being wicked. It's the opposite to actually walk with God, to live not as a functional atheist, but as a functional theist who actually daily would turn his heart to God. And God was pleased with that. He was pleased with his trust, his faith in God. And so the plan is to judge human beings for their wickedness and to save Noah and, by extension, his family. God summarizes the plan here in chapter 6, verse 11. The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. See that repetition there? For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Don't know what that is. No one does. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. So the plan is judgment with a catastrophic flood and salvation through an ark. Now, what's an ark? Evidently, it's something people like to put on their nursery room uh, walls. I'm not sure why knowing the ark would be a great story for your young child, but more power to you. So what's an ark? It's a rudderless boat. Uh, It has no sails. It has no oars, no means of steerage, no means of uh, propelling this thing. It's just floating. I don't know if you... When you were a kid, if you ever like made a little paper boat and put it in the creek and just kind of watched it do its thing, and you had no way to control it. Like this, this is the, the, the sense of this ark. There's no way of steering it or sailing it or having any kind of controlling it. It becomes a means of trusting God. It becomes a means of trusting God. Get in this ark. I can't steer that ark. Yeah, but God's in control. <laughs> And so he, t- he gives very, very detailed instructions about how to do this. You engineers, you can go back and look at that. Um, but it's three decks high, and it's got waterproof pitch both on the inside and the outside to make sure it's nice and watertight. And then God gives some more details about his plans for Noah. Genesis 6, verse 17 through 19. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which it is the breath of life under heaven. And everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female. So not only is God going to save Noah and his family, he's going to establish a covenant. It's the first time this word is ever used in the Bible right here with Noah, covenant. And you think of it as an agreement that's being made between two parties, and one of those parties is God. And we're, and we're getting the hint here, like God is going to destroy all that he's created. This, this judgment uh, is, is, is also going to start fresh with Noah. He's going to do a recreation with Noah and his family. One commentator calls this a kind of creation in miniature that's inside that ark, and he's going to restart the order of all things. And Noah's response to God's instructions, Genesis 6, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Now, that's not surprising. He's blameless, righteous, walks with God. He builds the ark, just like God says, and just like God says, judgment comes. The rain comes. Comes. We read about this in Genesis 7. Okay, so we, we're, we're in the next chapter. Verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. This is catastrophic. Even the way it's worded there. It's like they're running from the water. It's coming. It's coming. They're escaping and getting on the ark. 
It's then described this way, Genesis 7, 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. What's being described here is a reversal of what God did in the creation account. He's decreating the the earth. Right? Remember back in Genesis 1, God let, said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and that separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening. There was morning the second day. Then he does some more forming and filling. The God, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, all he called seas, and God saw that it was good. He's literally doing the opposite of that now. The, the land is bursting forth, and the water's coming up, and we're, we're going back to formless and void. The water that had been pushed up in, into the, the firmament or the atmosphere is now kind of coming through the, the clouds, and it's causing this deluge in the created order. Now, this is a, a, a one way to understand uh, how God judges sin. This is what sin does, right? It decreates, it dismantles the good order of God. And then in its chaos, when it's judged, they just get more of the same. Uh, Paul writes in Romans, it's like a turning over. It's like, okay, so you want to dismantle the creation. I'm just going to give you the 100% dismantling of the creation. And it goes all the way back to the earth being formless and void. Uh, It's described this way again, verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased, bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And the water prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's about half the ark. Uh, And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out, there's that word again, every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. That's first part of the plan. Second part of the plan, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. It's very detailed about the comprehensive nature of the flood. Nothing was left untouched. He said he was going to blot out human beings, and he did exactly that. There was no escape. All the grumpy little canes and the cocky little lamax were gone. They were drowned. All those who had been trying to bring about anti-culture, right, dismantling the goodness of God instead of bringing about culture, bringing about things that were good for humans and uh, glorifying to God, they're all gone. Only Noah and those who are with him are saved. Now, the waters eventually subside after 150 days. Oh, I can't imagine that much time with those animals on that ark. But they they did it. Lots of details that we could talk about here, but with the interest of time, we want to go all the way to Genesis 8 when they leave the ark. So Genesis 8, verse 13 in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark. He looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. That's a big day. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had, had dried out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful. And so they all, they all go out of the ark. This is an interesting passage because 
Noah sees the dry ground, but he doesn't get out. <laughs> he waits for God. I would have been out of that thing. And I'd be like, I'm out of here. Right? And he waits. He waits an additional month until God gives him instructions. It's another glimpse of Noah walking with God. He really is walking with God, trusting in, believing in God with his full faith and trust. They finally get off the ark uh, after it's been you know, 200 plus days. Uh, and what does Noah do? Go for a walk or maybe pick a flower or look for some food or get to building a house? No, Genesis 8, 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. This was first on his to-do list, make a sacrifice to God. He brings the clean animals. I'm fairly certain this means animals that God had, had sanctioned for Noah, that these are the kinds of animals that you can sacrifice. I don't think there was kosher food laws yet. I'm pretty sure that's, that's more about sacrificing the animals. Uh, and he kills these animals, and he offers them up to God, in part because he, he wants to enter into covenant with God. Remember, God said, I want to make a covenant with you, Noah. And so when he gets off that boat, he's like, okay, we're going to make a covenant. I want to make a covenant. And so what you would do, typically in a covenant, you would, would kill an animal. And it's a way of saying that if I don't fulfill my end of the covenant, then what's going to ha- happen to me is what happened to that animal, Right? And so Noah has this sort of ancient vision of, of, of covenants, and he wants to make this covenant uh, with God, and, and, and God welcomes this from him. He welcomes, he says that, 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 that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God's like, I'm never going to do this again. As long as the earth is in existence, I'm never going to do this again. I'm never going to suspend the seasons of the earth. I am going to extend, God says, this basically common grace to human beings, regardless of their wickedness. It's not a transaction, right? He doesn't say, now, if you obey and you do what you're supposed to do, I'll promise I won't flood. But if you start acting up again, we're going to bring another flood. That's not how it goes. He's like, I'm never going to do this again. And there's obviously going to be a lot more wickedness that's going to come throughout human history. He says, I'm never, I'm never going to do this again. I'm going to extend common grace to human beings based on this covenant that he's making with Noah. Now, God does some explaining of the terms of the covenant, which would have been a, a normal part of this, right? Is like, okay, here are the terms. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you're going to do. And we're going we're gonna to make this pact. And then if one of us doesn't do what we're supposed to do, then um, we're, we're like this animal that we just killed, this kind of thing. But this is very interesting. God takes this whole covenant thing and he, he changes it. Uh, Genesis 9, he says, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh and its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. And then this quote, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So it's interesting. He really, he's not really asking anything from Noah. He's, he's just republishing what he said to Adam and Eve on one hand. A lot of similar language there where he's, he's saying to them, I'm entrusting the earth to you. You're going to do administration, just like Adam and Eve were entrusted with the earth. And you're also going to do procreation. That was also given to Adam and Eve, and now it's being given to Noah and his family. But there's also some different things, right? There's going to be an adversarial relationship between humans and animals. 
So their domain is still going to be in rebellion against them because of the corruption of sin. They can now eat the meat of animals, but they can't eat the blood. And so there's this kind of sacredness of blood that's being instituted here, and that's going to show back up as uh, you go through the history of the people of God. God also institutes human government in this passage. He is saying that humans can collectively give retributive justice against murderers. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. Um, he's, he's saying that collectively human beings can have the power of the sword. They can have lethal force, and they can use lethal force to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. And so he institutes this as a restraint on evil. This is really a kindness to human beings. There's going to be no more Lamex that are like, I just kill anybody I want to. No, there's going to be government, collective authority, not just revenge killings here. It's not what we're talking about, but collectively giving authority to human beings to restrain evil. And in particular, God is concerned with murder because it is the killing of his image bearers, his special creation, and he does not want that to happen. Then in Genesis 9, verse 8, he gives the sign of the covenant. And God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. So he's making covenant now with, with all the animals. This is kind of cool, right? God, God cares about animals, right? I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you, every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so God sets the, the bow, the rainbow in the clouds to remind himself not to destroy the earth again. It's not for humans to look and remember something, except to remember that God's going to remember he is going to remember, I'm, I'm not going to destroy the earth with a, a flood. And you're like, well, is God forgetful? I mean, does he need, does he need help, like remembering things? Um, no, it's his way of saying this is a one-way covenant. This is a one-way, unconditional covenant from God. This is no transaction here. This is not, okay, human beings, you hold up your end of the deal, and then I will hold it up in my end of the deal. It's I'm going to hold up my end of the deal, period. And every time you see that rainbow, you can remember, I'm going to hold up my end of the deal. These are patterns that God is setting up that will be repeated throughout the history of his people in the Old Testament. The pattern of sinners deserving judgment and God delivering that judgment, but also mercy being extended through the one to the many. I want you to hear it again. This is a pattern that he's setting up in this story that's going to be repeated over and over and over again. Sinners that deserve judgment and God delivering that judgment. That's one part of the pattern. That's plan, plan part, part of the plan number one, right? And then the part number two, him extending mercy through the many to, or through the one to the many, right? Through the one and to the many. And all of this is on the shoulders of God. It's completely on, on him. It is grace and grace alone. And it's a good thing because it doesn't take long for Noah and the boys to plummet. And this is what we see in Genesis 9. And I'm not going to read this 
But here's, here's the, the, the quick recap is that uh, the second thing on uh, Noah's to-do list after the sacrifice on the altar, good job, Noah, but the second thing was plant a vineyard, make some wine, get totally drunk out of his mind, so much so that he loses his presence of mind to the point where he's absolutely naked, lying there passed out in his tent. His son Ham comes by and is like, oh, look at dad, right? And instead of covering up Noah's shame, he goes and tells his brother, brother, both his other brothers. We don't know why he does that. We don't know if he's laughing or if, if, if he's, he thinks it's bad or whatever, but he doesn't cover dad's shame. And he goes and he compounds the shame by telling his brothers. Now, Shem and Japheth, they snap into action. They cover Noah's shame. Noah wakes up, realizes what Ham has done. And there's some kind of a poetic justice here. And Noah curses Ham's son, Canaan. And so he's like, it's, it's almost like he's saying, okay, so I have shame from my son. Now you get shame from your son. And Canaan lives up to his curse. He turns out to be the father of a group of people known as the Canaanites who are going to show back up in the history of God's people uh, several hundred years later. Again, strange story, a lot of questions. We can talk about it over tacos at Lazarus. Um, But one of the things it's saying for sure is the flood did not fix the problem. The flood did not fix the problem. Um, and the, the not-so-grand finale for Noah is Genesis 9, 28. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. He died. I mean, Noah had a pretty good run. <laughs> I mean, 950 years. But imagine the budding new humanity standing around Noah's deathbed watching him in the throes of death, thinking he was the one that would be the the sin and the Satan crusher. But he wasn't. He wasn't. Now, it turns out Canaan wasn't the only one cursed, that humanity continued to experience the curse of sin. And while God had certainly restrained evil, he had actually even establish some, some new institutions, right, to, to help restrain evil and help contribute to human thriving, people were still dying. They might not have all experienced the flood, but they experienced the ultimate flood, which is death. The ultimate decreation. And so these, these patterns that are being portrayed in this story. Again, they're part of the story of God's people over and over and over again. The judgment for human sin and the salvation of the many through the one. Now, Noah wasn't the ultimate savior of the human race, but he was a type that was pointing forward to the one that would be the ultimate savior for the human race race, that the plan that we see in these passages is going to ultimately be carried out, the first part of judgment and the second part of salvation. The New Testament writers certainly saw this pattern. Jesus himself used the Noah story to talk about the judgment to come. He says this in Luke 17, 24, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky, From one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation, just as it was in the days of Noah. So will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And Jesus is using that to say, you think that was bad? You think that was bad. There's a comprehensive judgment that's coming. When you read in Revelation about the lake of fire, it feels a little bit like cartoonish, and it's really more about symbolic language. What it's saying is it's putting two things that are symbols of chaos 
water and fire, and it's putting them together. And it's saying this will be the ultimate decreation, is death, eternal death separated from God. But there is one who's come to save us from that. And he comes in a very unlikely family line. In the book of Luke, chapter 3, you have one of the genealogies, one of the two genealogies of Jesus. And it's, a, it, it's a kind of funky because it starts with Jesus and it goes backwards, right? So Luke 3.23, it starts, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then it goes through this long genealogy of all these people, all these crazy names. And you might recognize some, you might not recognize others. And then he gets to the end, and we recognize some names in verse 34. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. We got some patriarchs there. And then some, maybe some that we don't recognize. Son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Rehu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of uh, Arphaxadad. There's a, there's, a, there's a name for a future child right there. The son of Shem. Wow, there's, oh, we recognize that. Son of Noah. Son of Lamech, look who's in Jesus' line. Very unlikely family for the Savior of the world to come from, right? And so not only that, but there's Adam in there at the end, right? The one through whom death came because of sin. Jesus identifies with the worst of sinners, the ones who every intention of their thoughts of their heart were evil continually. And he saves them. He saves them. He brings salvation. Now, how do you access that salvation, right? How do you access that salvation? You just have to be from a good family or have to have some good training? Try hard? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us how Noah, and this is partly why I think what, what I said earlier about Noah, Hebrews 11, verse 6, And without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The way you receive this salvation, the same way that Noah received the salvation that was being offered to him on the ark, you receive it by faith. You receive it as a free gift. You get on the ark. Judgment's coming. Judgment is coming. And it is a comprehensive, eternal judgment for human sin. But there is a Savior. There's a Savior. And He became one of us in the line of sinners in order to die a human death in our place so that we could be forgiven. Get on the ark! Right? Get on the ark. You're like, well, that ark looks like I can't steer it. Like, it's rudderless, and I, I can't control that. Like, yeah, I know. This thing is by faith. You get on this ark by faith. You put your full faith and trust in God, and not just the nebulous God, the God that we remember at this table. The God who is in the family line of Lamech. Took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he had given thanks for the cup, he took it and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many. Why, Jesus? For the forgiveness of sin. Not just simple behavior, but simple condition. And so this is the one saving the many. And it's what he was saying to those disciples. He's like, 
disciples, I'm, I'm going to the cross tomorrow, and I'm going to save y'all in this room. But I'm, I've got a bigger plan than that. I want to save many. Right? I'm going to bring many out of the coming flood of my judgment. So if you've not yet received that salvation by faith, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Get on the ark. Get on the ark. This, this is the only hope. This is the only plan. There is no plan B. This is plan A. There is no plan B for escaping his judgment. For, the, for those of you that are on the ark, it's a reminder, right? We remember, except our, the sign of our new covenant in Christ is not a rainbow, but it's what this table represents. The memory of our Savior, our true and better Noah, dying in our place giving his life so we could be forgiven of our sins, raising up after three days, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back. And we don't have to be afraid when he comes back. We just receive him with open arms because we've gotten on to the ark of his salvation. Let's pray. God, you are a God of love and justice and righteousness and mercy and grace and wrath. You're you're all these things and more. And we want to worship the one true God. We, We don't want to worship a God of our own making. And we could just confess to you, I confess to you, it's so easy for me to put you in my little God form, and, and that, you, don't, you just don't stay in that. You don't stay in that box. And I pray that this passage would help us to understand better who you are, how glorious you are, how good you are, how full of mercy you are, but also how holy you are and how righteous you are and why, why sin matters and how you've come to save us from it. So God, bless each one here, wherever they are in that conversation. God, help, help us to understand it and to turn to you in faith, to, to trust in, to rely on, to get in this rudderless boat called the Christian life and trust you in it on into eternity. And we are so grateful for this sign that we have of the new covenant. It's not just a common grace, general covenant of not flooding the earth, but a, a covenant that is for those who Put their faith in your son and what he's done on the cross for us. God, thank you for that. And uh, we pray your blessing over it. Pray your blessing over this time as we take the bread and the cup. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.